Welcome to a community-supported and guest-produced edition of the Best of the Left podcast, with clips today from The Rachel Maddow Show, Countdown with Keith Olbermann, and The Randy Rhodes Show. I have always said that uh, I will listen to the requests of our commanders on the ground. Mr. President, you did not listen. You continue to pursue a failed strategy that is breaking our great Army and Marine Corps. I left the Army in protest in order to speak out. Mr. President, you have placed our nation in peril. Our only hope is that Congress will act now to protect our fighting men and women. That's retired Major General John Batiste. In an ad released yesterday by VoteVets.org, Major General Batiste was the commander of the 1st Infantry Division in Iraq from February 04 till February 05. He quit the Army in June 2005 after 31 years in the Army. He has since become a vocal opponent of the war, the way it's being managed. Retired Major General John Batiste joins us on the phone from upstate New York. General, thank you very much for joining us. Rachel, thank you. It's good to be with you. When you said you quit in protest, what do you mean? Can you describe that? In the summer of 2005, Rachel, I made the gut-wrenching decision uh, to turn my back on an institution that I loved and that I had served uh, 31 years, two-time combat veteran, expensive ser- service in the Balkans, Bosnia, and Kosovo. But I, I came to the realization uh, that I could do more good for my soldiers and their families in a suit and tie than I could wearing the uniform of the United States. I love this country, and I stepped out of the military in order to speak out about the outrageous way uh, this country went to war in March of 2003. Is there, um, how bright is the line between what you can say in uniform and what you can't say uh, in, in uniform? When you made that decision, when you realized that in a suit and tie you could do the things that you wanted to do that you couldn't have done in uniform, what, what's the line there? What, what, what changes in terms of what you, you really are allowed to do? Rachel, it's a solid line. Mm. Inside the military, uh, you serve. Uh, you certainly speak out within the organization, and you trust that your senior leaders pass that information up the chain of command. But you don't step outside that line and speak out against the military. Mm. It's a violation of the Uniform Code of Military Justice to do so. In order to speak out, you need to cross the line and shift from being a military officer to a civilian. And at that point, the shackles are off and you can speak. Hmm. Do, you, um, do you believe that the part of the blame for, for where we are now and for what's gone wrong in terms of our Iraq policy and, and what we're doing in Iraq now, do you think that the blame is shared by senior military officers and by the civilian leadership, by the Bush administration, or do you feel like this was uh, really that the, the, the fault here lies with the, the political decision makers, not the military decision makers? There's no question at all, Rachel, that there is there, that there is blame that needs to be shared by both senior civilian and senior military. Mm. We count on our senior generals to be grounded in the fundamentals of the principles of war and to give the senior leaders good, sound military advice. And when things aren't right, they need to speak up. I'm talking at the four-star level. That must happen. And in the, the spring of 2003, uh, it didn't. 
Why not? Were they cowed by the civilian leadership? Were they uh, on board with the same kind of uh, magical thinking and wishful thinking and radical thinking that the civilian leadership was flawed by? Flawed by? Or, or, or was it something specifically military about how they screwed well, up? This is all water under the bridge in history, but Donald Rumsfeld surrounded himself with like-minded and compliant subordinates. Hmm. He got it his way. When you say that the um, in this ad that was released yesterday by VoteVets.org, and I understand you're also a senior advisor to VoteVets, right? Yes, I am. Yes, okay. Uh, in the in the ad, you essentially say that the president doesn't mean it when he says he has paid attention and is still paying attention to the commanders on the ground in Iraq. That's something that we've talked about a lot on this show, uh, in part about this statement um, earlier this year by General Abizade, where he said that the commanders on the ground didn't want this surge, for example. Um, what do you mean when you, when, you, when you criticize the president for that? Well, well, first of all, I've got to say that VoteVets.org is a, a great organization. It's not anti-war. Mm. It's all about this wonderful country of ours, defending it, defeating global terrorism, and doing what's right for our soldiers and our Marines. Now, to answer your question, uh, there was a complete breakdown in the flow of information. Uh, you remember back when General Shinseki and guys like General Zinni and a host of others were very vocal and forthright in their assessment about what it would take to be successful in Iraq. They were totally ignored. The, the hard work out of U.S. Central Command for 12 years to develop the war planning uh, and, and the plan to be successful to do regime change in Iraq was fundamentally ignored. The hard work to build the peace, uh, the planning, uh, the, re- the rehearsals, the resourcing of that was ignored until two or three weeks before the invasion. Uh, all of the commanders like myself, divisional commanders, uh, reporting monthly, if not weekly, detailed assessments uh, and shortages, uh, I don't know where all that went, but it was totally ignored. It, this is all about surrounding yourself with like-minded and compliant subordinates who filter out the information. Uh, you know, Abraham Lincoln built a team of rivals around him. There's mm-hmm. a great book out on that, where he appointed to his cabinet all of the guys that ran against him in the election mm-hmm. so that there was great dialogue and conversation and debate before a division, uh, decision was taken. In this administration... They don't get that. Hmm. There is no debate. Everybody's of the same mind, of the same opinion, and it's the blind leading the blind.
three huge things you can do to help support the show, but they only take a few seconds. Leave us a great customer review in the iTunes Music Store, dig the show on dig.com, and every month you can vote for the best of the left at podcastalley.com. Find links to all three of these most important sites on the right-hand side at bestoftheleftpodcast.com. Thanks for your support. from New York. It's game time. That a senior administration official's summary of the vice president's message to his Iraqi counterparts during a surprise visit to Baghdad, begging the question, just what were the last four years then, dick? Batting practice? Our fifth story on the countdown as that happens. And a Republican senator proposes a new plan for withdrawal. We have breaking news about an extraordinary meeting at the White House. Not necessarily Hugh Scott and Barry Goldwater taking their tough love to the Richard Nixon White House, but the possible watershed moment so many have awaited. Eleven congressional Republicans telling this president in almost unprecedented frankness that the people they represent are prepared for defeat in Iraq and that he has no credibility left about the war. Our Washington bureau chief, Tim Russert, sharing the exclusive details with Brian Williams on Nightly News. At 2.30 in the afternoon, in the private quarters of the White House, the solarium room, 11 Republican congressmen had a private meeting with the president, the secretary of defense, the secretary of state, the chief political advisor, Karl Rove, and the White House press secretary, Tony Snow, and others. This delegation was headed by Mark Kirk of Illinois and Charlie Dent of Pennsylvania. It was, in the words of one of the participants, the most unvarnished conversation they've ever had with the president. Another member said he has met with three presidents and never been so candid. They told the president in one said, quote, my district is prepared for defeat. We need candor. We need honesty, Mr. President. The president responded, I don't want to pass this off to another president. I don't want to pass this off particularly to a Democratic president, underscoring he understood how serious the situation was. Brian, the Republican congressman then went on to say, the word about the war and its progress cannot come from the White House or even you, Mr. President. There is no longer any credibility. It has to come from General Petraeus. The meeting lasted an hour and 15 minutes and was, in the words of one, remarkable for the bluntness and no holes barred honesty in the message delivered by all these Republican congressmen. And Tim, in the seconds remaining, how did the president react and how then did this affect the instructions for Vice President Cheney heading off to Iraq? One congressman said, how can our daughters and sons spill their blood while the Iraqi parliament goes on vacation. The president responded, the vice president is over there to tell them do not go on vacation. More now on the extraordinary meeting at the White House and joined now by Washington Post national political reporter and our own Dana Milbank. Dana, good evening. Good evening, Keith. Uh, What does it reveal about the president, his administration, um, his party, that this meeting with this gang of 11 even took place? 
Well, I think it is an extraordinary moment and possibly a turning point. Uh, that the, First of all, we have the uh, Republicans being uh, very blunt with the president. We have Republicans in the Senate now talking about going against him with these benchmarks. Uh, and we have the Secretary of Defense telling Congress that uh, you know, st things are starting to look at September as some sort of a deadline here. And even the vice president, uh, in his own way, trying to uh, step up the pressure on the Iraqis. I think what this is all uh, heading towards is uh, there, there seems to be some forging uh, of a consensus through pressure on the president uh, towards some sort of uh, an ultimatum and a deadline for the Iraqi parliament uh, this fall. And what would his reaction be to that, to being told that he doesn't have any credibility left on Iraq, not by Democrats, not by anti-war protesters, not by the webs, but by, by members of his own party? Is there anybody able to convince this president that he's lost his credibility on anything? I think the president uh, knows that in some level because he's already said that his best uh, person to put forth uh, on the war is uh, General Petraeus. So he realizes that problem. Uh, he's been flailing quite a bit. Uh, last week was this sort of uh, swerve towards uh, uh, blaming uh, everything at once again on Al Qaeda. Uh, I think the president realizes that you know one speech after another, he's beginning to see that uh, it's having no effect here. So that should not come as any surprise to him. Uh, the fact is he's not going have a lot of uh, uh, options here if the Republicans are willing to now join with Democrats in Congress to have a filibuster-proof majority. Obviously, this did not get out of the White House and out of Congress. This me the fact of this meeting did not get out via Democrats, nor even, uh, no offense to Mr. Russert, by intrepid reporting. Republicans leaked this. Uh, is, what, what should we sort of take us into the future? What events in the next two weeks might we see involving the president that would suggest that he, he got the message today or yesterday? Well, that will be very, uh, very difficult to see. Uh, but uh, look, I mean, Josh Bolton, his chief of staff, is up there negotiating in the Senate. He's given them very little in terms of what they are willing to do so far. So if you see uh, uh, Josh Bolton giving the signals that, yes, they are willing to accept benchmarks, these sort of hurdles that the Iraqi government must meet with actual consequences, which act with actual teeth, then you will see that the president has gotten the message. I have a feeling uh, if he doesn't get that message, it's, it's, it's very shortly going to be forced upon him. And the leaders of this group, Mr. Dent being uh, mentioned in there, what, do we know anything of those, those names that are involved and what their status is with, with the White House and what the reaction would be to seeing Charlie Dent come in there and say something like uh, what Tim Russert quoted the group as saying? Well, what it is is these aren't the usual suspects, the, uh, you know, the Walter Jones or uh, Ron Paul, something like that, the people you, you would always expect to go against you. So these are, while not Republican leaders, are certainly mainstream Republicans, uh, vulnerable Republicans. Uh, the president obviously realizing that not only does this uh, Iraq war risk uh, a larger Democratic majorities in Congress, but risks uh, handing the presidency to the Democrats as well. All right, one more point on this. I referenced Hugh Scott and Barry Goldwater going to the White House in August of 74 to tell President Nixon that the Watergate game was up. That This is not, obviously not on that level, but is this the closest thing George Bush has experienced to it in his presidency? I think it is. I think it's an apt analogy. Uh, you, you are correct that the consequences are nowhere near as immediate here, but uh, the message is being delivered very uh, immediately to the president in the same way he could obviously get the same message uh, reading the polls, a new USA Today Gallup poll out today saying 60 percent or so believe the Iraq war was a mistake and want the uh, United States uh, to set a timetable for a pullout, even if that results in a civil war.
encourage you all to communicate with the show, and there are lots of ways you can do it. You can join the community forum to speak with other listeners, leave comments on the show notes blog, send emails directly to me at hippiesympathizer at gmail.com, or have your voice heard by the entire audience by calling the comment line at 206-202-0195. Links to all of these at bestoftheleftpodcast.com. It seems to me like we have two massive, massive problems with Iraq. We have the decision to go and at this point the inability to decide to leave that's the the policy issue and we've also got this issue of implementation and what you're talking about about all the the work that was done that should have um uh, that should have cleared the way to at least implement what was a flawed policy at least implement it properly to limit some of the damage that it was going to cause i understand how to uh make right the policy problems that we've got but i'm worried about maybe we do get some great new president next time maybe even this one gets impeached for having made this mistake but how do we make sure that the 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 insular surrounding yourself with yes men bad military stuff doesn't happen again well that's that's a great question rachel and and it's something we got to worry about uh we need to look at the uh, the the laws, the Goldwater Nichols Act of 1986. Uh, we need to ensure that we've got war fighters at the senior levels of the military. Mm. We we have got a problem in Iraq, and it's really twofold. One is our strategy is fatally flawed. It's flawed today. It was flawed in the spring of 2003. And the, the biggest problem is that our president continues to rely on the military component of our strategy to pull us off. He's all but ignoring the diplomatic, political, and economic aspects of strategy. And unless we get that right, we're wasting our time in Iraq. The other problem is we have never mobilized this country for what we're doing in Iraq. Mm. We haven't mobilized it on any level. We the people, if we knew what was required, how long it would take, what it would cost, what would be the implication for failure, we would all stand up and and, and be uh, accounted for. The people in Rochester, New York, I know would would provide whatever's required to be successful. Nobody's asked us. The military, the Army, and the Marine Corps specifically are at a breaking point. They need resources. If we brought the Army home today with a with a snap of the finger, it would cost eighty to one hundred billion with a B dollars to refit the force. Do you know today if a helicopter is shot down, it takes up to two years to replace it? Do you know that the Army's competing with golf club manufacturers for titanium? The problems with the VA are incredible. Walter Reed's the tip of the iceberg. We're spending $10 billion a month funded with supplementals. What that means to you and I, it's funny money. We're printing more money and mortgaging our future. It's a failure to mobilize. This country uh, in the First and the Second World War and the Korean War got behind it. I remember my grandparents talking about it, uh, different taxes and, and war bonds. Where is that? If this is important, and it is, uh, we need to get behind it. Uh, Iraq and Afghanistan are but the first two chapters in a very long book, and we're off to a terrible start. It's not the American way of war. It's not the country I know.
The issue about the American public really understanding the cost of the war, as, as you say, what it's going to even take to hit the reset button in terms of our military readiness and our military strength, getting us back to zero after what we've already been through uh, in these going on in these five years uh, in Iraq and Afghanistan. You know, I, I feel like part of the reason that it's never been explained to us and we've never been asked to sacrifice is because there's never been a way. There's never been a way to really explain in unimpeachable terms what exactly it is that we're doing there. And so they haven't bothered to ask us to sacrifice because that would require us an answer to the to the inevitable next question, which is, well, what are we sacrificing for? That's why I feel like the questions about the, the what led us into war and, and the, the, the justification for why we went there in the first place, why that stuff still matters. Because until they can answer that stuff, that they yeah. still can't ask us to sacrifice. Bingo. Yeah. Bingo. We turn to our president to energize and, and lead the country. Never happened. If we had gone to school on the hard work of the U.S. Central Command for 12 years to develop the war plan to do this properly, if we had gone to school on the full requirements that it would have cost this nation, they, we might be in a very different position today. Our leaders didn't want us to know the cost and what the commitment was going to be. They completely got it wrong. They didn't read the history of Iraq. Uh, I mean, the the United Kingdom has lots of experience, uh, a terribly complex region that we just waved off. You know, I can remember the the, the quotes. Uh, yeah, they'll they'll meet us with roses in the streets, mm. and all will be well. My God, how naive! General Batiste, one last question for you. I don't know if. If you're at all a betting man, I'm guessing that you probably aren't. But if you were and you had to place a bet on how long American troops are going to be in Iraq in significant numbers, how long do you think it'll be? The answer's too long. Yeah. Uh, we, we need to face up to the fact that we've got this wrong. It's been an ill-conceived mission. It's, the strategy has been tragically flawed from the beginning. And we need to do now what's best for America. We need to turn Iraq over to the Iraqis. Uh, it'll take eight months. Uh, to do a deliberate redeployment. We owe it to the Iraqis, good people, uh, to leave it in the best shape that they are. But at the end of the day, what worries me and what ought to worry all of us is the long-term threat of global terrorism. Our military is at the breaking point. It needs to be rearmed, refit. We need to rethink our strategy. And we damn sure need to be thinking about how to secure this country with homeland security and prepare for the next chapter and the next chapter and the next chapter and the next chapter. Yeah. General John Batiste, thank you so much for joining us and thank you for your work. I really appreciate the chance to talk to you today. This show is produced with the help of the members of the Best of the Left community. You too can be a part of the show, and we would love your help. You can submit information about great clips you've heard, volunteer to help edit these clips for the show, or actually become an occasional guest producer. For more information, please visit the community at bestoftheleftpodcast.com.
If you started calling your Republican congressman, you could make a really huge difference. Well, guess what? People were calling their Republican congressman for the last week or so. And you know now that 11 Republicans took the long walk from Capitol Hill to the White House. And they tried to, I don't know, knock some sense into him. They tried to explain to him in what they're calling a very frank conversation about the situation in Iraq, that they are frustrated and that they are hearing from very unhappy, impatient <gasps> voters. Yeah, Tom Davis of Virginia. <laughs> it's for lovers, you know. Tom Davis of Virginia actually told the president that his approval rating was about 5% in a section of his northern Virginia district. Now, if anybody's ever been to northern Virginia, I think you must understand it's pretty conservative in the district of northern Virginia. I know because I was to go on trial there, and everybody was worried about the jury pool and it was uh, suggested to me that the jury pool in uh, Northern Virginia would be extremely conservative. And I really didn't care because I thought, for God's sake, you know, I'm right and I'll win. But uh, isn't that amazing that the president's approval rating in Northern Virginia is at 5%? You know, this is what it's come down to. The I don't want to say the president, but he is the president. It's killing me to say it. But his approval rating in parts of northern Virginia are less than the margin of error, which means his approval rating could be zero, goose egg, donut, squat, not a nil, nothing, nothing. Can you believe that? His, his approval rating in parts of northern Virginia are less than the margin of error in the poll itself. And so... They walked over, not because they're worried about our troops dying, and not because they haven't stopped voting to continue this, this mass madness, you maniacs, you. No, no, they're willing to let our troops continue to die. They just don't want their ability to be reelected to die with them. Is that the most disgusting thing you ever heard in your life? But that's exactly what they went to tell them, that politics is not supportive of their reelection. In 2008, and you know, everybody in the House has to run every two years. Come Iraq or high water, they have to run. So they went up there to talk. Now, I don't know how you talk sense into a guy who is used to dealing with things the way they aren't. What do you do? Do you go over there and start bitch slapping him and screaming, no more wire hangers, Christina, ever? Or is it just, step out of it! You know, what do you do to get his attention? Dangle small, shiny objects. I don't know. But that's what they aimed to do. They went up to the White House and they made it clear to George Bush that he has to stop trying to win this war and concentrate on pinning it on the Democrats. Apparently was the message given there. Now, what's really fascinating is that I could tell you that that's what they told him, but that's what they are telling you that they told him. I mean, this is just stunning to me. Roy LaHood, a Republican from Illinois, who characterizes himself as a moderate, uh, laid it all out. Now, he was phoning it in. 
So it's a little uh, hard to understand. I hope it's clear enough for you. But uh, this is just exactly how he explained what he was trying to tell the president. Ray LaHood, uh, your fellow congressman Tom Davis uh, said that this was a remarkable, very candid meeting. What words would you use to describe it? Uh, you know, unvarnished, uh, about as frank and honest as I've ever been to at the White House. I've been to a lot of meetings, uh, most problem, of them on the war, and uh, members uh, really uh, told the president uh, in, I think, uh, the most unvarnished way that they possibly could that uh, things have got to change, uh, that we're going to hang with him till September, but uh, we need an honest assessment in September, and that people's patience is running very, very, very thin. There, there were 11 members there, and I think each member expressed it in a little different way, but the theme was the same. The American people are war fatigued. The American people want to know that there's a way out. The American people want to know that we're having success, either the government or our men and women who are doing the hard work. And it's not reflected on the television screens, and it's not reflected in the numbers, uh, particularly as the surge begins. And uh, people are very war-weary, and that's going to be reflected uh, in, in people's opinions much stronger in the fall, I believe. See, it's much stronger in the fall. He, You know, if he used the word unvarnished one more time, I was going to accuse him of varnishing something. Do you know what I mean? Uh, War-weary, uh, the constituents are calling, the American people, translation, my district, is phoning my office both in Washington and in the northern Virginia district in which I toil. And they are not happy. But it's a very um, sly little thing he slips in there. He says... They're not seeing the hard work and the progress that the troops are making on the ground, on the TV. Translation, Bush, pin it on the Democrats. Start blaming the media again. And the other message that we got through Tim Russert's uh, explanation of what happened there was pretty much that uh, they want the president to shut up about the war and let Petraeus sell it because the president, who was once their charming used car salesman of the year, is now seen as a idiot, a, a moron, a doddering fool, a, a repeater of, of, of catchphrases and nothing more, an empty suit, if you will, a, a, a person who has no credibility left. And that's what Russert said when he called, I, I, when he uh, did his uh, little report on uh, Nightly News. I'll play that for you next because that is stunning, too. It's really incredible that... It really isn't about our troops dying. It's about the political careers of Republicans dying, and that they just won't have. We've had enough. We've had enough. We've had enough. All the Oh, we need right now. 
Uh, this evening, the House rejected the plan to withdraw beginning in nine months. The military under such great stress, is there a point at which any deadline, any time structure for this will be too late? Keith, this is less about deadlines and timelines uh, than it is about coming to grips with the fact that we went to war with a fatally flawed strategy, flawed then in March of 2003, flawed today, over four years later. This is all about a president who's relying almost solely on the military component of strategy to accomplish the mission in Iraq. Sadly, we're missing the diplomatic, the political, and the economic components that are fundamental and required to be successful. We have an interagency process that has been dysfunctional during this administration. There's no unity of effort between the agencies. It, it, the bottom line is we have a failed strategy now, and our president has not mobilized this great nation to accomplish the critical work to defeat global terrorism. And until we get these two things right, we're wasting our time. General, are you encouraged? Are you uh, 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 disinterested in? Are you uh, interested in what happened Tuesday at the White House between these 11 moderate Republicans and the president and this discussion of, of the political implications of this? Do you see this as some sort of watershed moment? Uh, Keith, I, I think so. Four of the 11 congressmen were members that the vote vet ad is targeting. I think that speaks volumes. And lastly, sir, the benchmarks, the, uh, the references continually made by, by those who went into the White House, uh, that the words about this war have to now come from General Petraeus, that he is the one with the credibility and the president is not the one with that. Uh, give us a, a, an honest assessment of his ability to give us an honest assessment of progress there. General David Petraeus is the best we've got. Uh, if anybody can pull this off militarily, he can. We have the best military this nation has ever fielded. But the president's strategy relies almost wholly on the military and ignores the important components of diplomatic, political, and economic hard work. If, if we don't get this right, we're going to break our Army and Marine Corps. And at this point in our history, that's the last thing we can do. Today, unfortunately, I get to be the bearer of bad news, and I have to tell you guys that um, our our longest running and and most consistent guest producer, Awesome Inshira, is actually leaving us temporarily to ship off to Afghanistan this month. Um, it's you know always sad to hear and nerve wracking, etc. You know, I know you guys really haven't gotten a chance to know him, uh, you know, only somewhat through his work, but he's he's done a great job for us. He's been huge support for the show and and has done some of the best work that we've all heard uh you know, since since he started helping. So, uh I you know, just wanted to say, you know, good luck to him, of course. Uh stay safe and um I I no, I'm speaking for everyone in the community and, and the audience when I say, you know, 
come back soon, come back safe, etc., etc. If you'd like to leave your own comments about that, there will be an, a new thread posted uh, in in the in the community forum there, and you know just stop in, uh, send your well wishes, and uh, and that'll be greatly appreciated. I know that uh, shows have been a little sporadic recently, uh, you know, long periods without shows and then shows without comments at the end, etc., etc. Um, things have been crazy to say the least here in my life, and uh, and I'll, I'll take time in another show to, to talk a little bit about what's been going on, but uh, nothing to worry about. Um, you know, I got one email... It, or you know, at, at least one, maybe maybe a comment somewhere else too about you know where the show go and yeah, hope everything's going okay and it, it is everything's fine. Um, but uh, we'll we'll tackle that subject another day. So uh, that'll do it for today from uh, inside the Beltway and outside the border of Washington D.C. I'm Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you from BestoftheLeftPodcast.com. Black and white You took apart a picture that wasn't right Pitch burning on a shining sheet The only maker that you want to be A dying man in a living room Whose shadow bases the floor